Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show of the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will examine one of my favorite topics, the intersection of sport and law. Beginning with a basic discussion of what laws are and why we have them, we will move to discuss how the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution is tied to interscholastic athletic participants. So if you ever wondered why high school student-athletes can be suspended from their team without being given the right to defend themselves, or how the world of sport management interacts with the study of law, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to talk about something outside of what we've talked about in the past, and that's this intersection between law and sport. It's something that we have classes on in the field of sport management. It's something that a lot of students are first drawn to when they enter into the study of sport management, but we've yet to really tackle that. Well, today that's going to change. What we're going to do is try to break down how this intersection actually occurs. And we're going to do that through looking at a specific example of the application of legal principles into the world of sport. But before we do any of that, I want to start by just discussing law to make sure we're all on the same page as we begin. So when I do this lecture in class, when I do this lecture in front of a group of people, I start with two very basic questions. And those are, why do we have laws in the first place? And what does the term law even mean? Well, we could spend multiple podcasts just talking about where laws come from, both from a very macro standpoint and the micro standpoint looking at specific laws. But what I want to do is just give you a basic understanding of why we have laws in the legal system. And Doherty et al. does a great job of describing this when they say, quote, law is a system of principles or rules that are established and enforced to regulate human behavior. This regulation is accomplished by establishing obligations and rights and by imposing a system for redress that allows penalties to be imposed for violations. In other words, we have laws to make sure people act in a certain way. And if they don't act in whatever way it is that the law states that they should, law gives us a course that we can impose punishment on them to try to make sure that they don't act that way again in the future. And the reason we have these laws in the first place is we can trace it back throughout history. As we had individuals change in their living habits, going from being hunters and gatherers and oftentimes having to move across the countries to settling down in one spot and farming and becoming more of an agrarian society. As they did this, we started to have towns and villages develop and people started to live in closer and closer proximity to each other and interact with each other on a more daily basis and we wanted at that time to establish a system to give protection to the individuals in these towns and villages when you're traveling around in hunters and gatherers and you are mobile all the time you don't have a lot of these daily interactions you're too focused just on getting food and surviving But once we establish the towns and these villages, 
and we go, turn to an agrarian society, we start to get into a society where we can store food. We don't have to look every day just to survive, and we have more free time. All of a sudden, there starts to be more interactions between the individuals who live in these areas. And without laws, those individuals could literally do whatever they wanted. If you had something I wanted, I could just take it from you, and there would be no redress or consequence for that action. And so people started to give up some of their rights in order to govern the actions of everyone and in order to give themselves protections. They started to give up their ability to steal from other people, to kill other people even, so that the government that's were being established could protect them from other people trying to steal from them, from other people maybe trying to kill them or other people trying to harm them. So these laws were put in place or established as a way to protect individuals against multiple behaviors that were being seen. And as new behaviors came into the fold, more laws were developed to continue to regulate them. That is the basic essence of law and how it came to be and why we have it. When we start to go forward, we can talk now in the modern day about different types of law. And textbooks and law classes will talk really about three different types of law. We have statutory law, constitutional law, and common law. Now, statutory laws are laws that we generally think of. These are the laws that come from the passage of the legislative body. If you remember, there are three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. The legislative's job, in large part, is just to pass laws. So when we say statutory law, that's what we're referring to, the laws that the legislative body is passing. We also have common law. Now, common law are laws that come from the findings in previous cases. And by that, I mean when laws are passed by the legislative bodies, oftentimes there are parts of them that are up for interpretation. And when we talk about interpretation, who does the interpreting of the laws? That is the judicial branch. And so whenever the judicial branch interprets a law through a court case, we have what's called common law established or the idea of a legal precedent. But the type of law that I'm going to focus on today when we talk about the intersection of law and sport is constitutional law. Now, these are laws that are embodied in the U.S. Constitution. These are for today's conversation, federal laws versus state or municipal laws. So let's stop and take a second right here to differentiate what a federal versus state versus municipal law is. And this deals with the idea of jurisdiction, and that is where does the law actually apply? From a general conversation standpoint, think of federal law as the overarching law for everyone. If there is a federal law, all states have to abide by it. Now, individual states can make stricter laws, but they cannot make a law that is more lenient than the federal law. The example I always give is think about the speed limit. If the federal government wanted to, they could have a national speed limit. They could pass that law. So they could say the national or federal speed limit is 60 miles an hour. Now, individual states cannot come through and say, well, in our state, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour because that law that they're passing conflicts with the federal law that's in place. But they could come through, individual states could say that in our state, the speed limit is 55 miles an hour. They can put a more restrictive law in place. Same thing with a municipality. 
We could have a federal speed limit of 60 miles an hour. The state could set the speed limit in the state at 55 miles an hour. And the municipality or the city could state an even more restrictive speed limit of 40 miles an hour. But just like with the federal law over the state, the state law holds jurisdiction over the municipality or over the city. And this is important because, as I said, when we talk about constitutional laws, laws that come from the U.S. Constitution, those laws oversee every other law that's in place. It oversees not only the other federal laws that are in place, other federal laws cannot conflict with the U.S. Constitution, but the U.S. Constitution also oversees all other state laws or state constitutions and all other city or municipal laws. And that's important for our conversation today because we're going to talk about a specific amendment to the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, and how it applies to sport. Before we can understand how it applies to sport, though, we first need to know what the 14th Amendment says. And the 14th Amendment says a lot. Let's start by giving you the context of what's happening around the 14th Amendment's passage. So, for context... The 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified July 28, 1868. And hopefully that date of 1868 means something to you because this is right when the Civil War is ending. And so as the Civil War is ending, we have a couple of amendments that are passed. The first one that's passed is the 13th Amendment. And the 13th Amendment states... In essence, that slavery in the United States is illegal. And why are they passing that? Because the major issue of the Civil War is slavery. And so we pass an amendment to our U.S. Constitution that says this can no longer happen. But that created another set of problems. Because now we have all these individuals who used to be slaves that are now living in our country. And until then, those individuals were not considered citizens of the United States. And so we have to then pass the 14th Amendment to make sure that those individuals are citizens. So the 14th Amendment, as I said, does many things, but Section 1 reads... Quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States are subject to the jurisdiction thereof and are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, end quote. This is extremely important because what it says is if you are born in the United States, regardless of if you are man or woman, regardless of if you are Native American, if you are African American, regardless of any of that, if you are born here, you are considered as citizens. That means all the slaves who were born here, who are now free due to the 13th Amendment, are also citizens of the United States. This is a big deal. But it doesn't stop there. Because just because we make these individual citizens doesn't mean we are protecting them the same way. So, the 14th Amendment goes on to say, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the law, end quote. So this is monumental. Not only have we now freed the slaves with the 13th Amendment and said that slavery is illegal within the United States, and then in the first part of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment stated that those individuals who were born in the United States, regardless of who they are, are citizens, 
Section 1 goes on to say that the state cannot make laws which abridge the privileges of being a citizen. That means, for example, states cannot make laws that make it hard for individuals of certain races, of certain genders, to do things like vote. They cannot impede on the rights that are granted to citizens in federal laws, in state laws, or in the U.S. Constitution. It goes on to say, we cannot, as a government, take away a person's life, liberty, or property without supplying them due process. So the big defining question becomes, what the heck is due process? Well, there are really two different types of due process. There's something that we call procedural due process, and there's something that we call substantiated due process. Procedural due process has this goal of ensuring fair treatment for everyone. So think about the methods used to enforce the rules. Things like you have the right to a hearing. You don't have the right to a trial, but you have the right to a hearing. You have the right to confront your accuser and to examine the evidence they have against you. You have a right to notice of the hearing's time and date prior to being deprived of life, liberty, or property interest. So procedural due process is designed to make sure that you are treated fairly just as everyone else is, and think of it as the methods in which we enforce the rules. Now, substantiated due process, the goal of that is to ensure the rules themselves are fair and reasonable. So here we're not thinking about the method used to enforce the rules. With substantiated due process, we're thinking about the rules itself. We're thinking about the guarantees that are basic and cannot be denied by the government. Things like your right to life, liberty, and property. Which brings up another question when we talk about the 14th Amendment and its application. What the heck is a liberty interest or a property interest? Well, a liberty interest is defined in Cotton and Woolahan's text as, quote, not merely freedom from bodily restraint, meaning imprisonment, but also generally to enjoy those privileges long recognized as essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men, end quote. So the idea of a liberty interest deals with us having the right to pursue the things that make us happy without being restrained. A property interest considers this idea of a legitimate claim or entitlement to a benefit, such as I have a legitimate claim to own land and that cannot be taken away from me. The idea of a life interest means I have the right to live. In sport, we primarily see claims Dealing with the 14th Amendment, dealing with those first two, though, the idea of a liberty interest or property interest. Now, there is one important point that we haven't made yet that we need to make sure we understand before we talk about the application of the 14th Amendment to sport. And that is how constitutional law is applied in general. And by that, I mean what we need to have happen in order for an action to rise to a violation of the Constitution. It's not that any claim rises to that violation. We have to have certain elements in place first. And this is something that I hear people get very confused in the media and in the public when they have these conversations, especially about the First Amendment. The First Amendment, in part, guarantees us freedom of press. It allows us to say whatever we want. And people get this confused oftentimes because they say, well, I have First Amendment rights. And you do. 
But people get upset when they get punished or maybe lose their job because of what they said. And they get confused because they cite the First Amendment. The First Amendment does not guarantee you protection from private companies or private individuals. What the First Amendment and all constitutional amendments do is they grant you protection from the government or what we consider government entities. In law, we call these individuals state actors. And in order for something to rise to the violation of a federal or constitutional law, you have to have state action. So what does state action mean? Well, the dictionary definition of state action is, quote, any action taken by a government, especially an intrusion on one's civil rights by a government agency, or a requirement that can be enforced only through government action, such as correcting a policy of sexual or racial discrimination that requires judicial action to enforce. In layman's terms, what we're saying is that state action is anything that the government does. Now, it doesn't apply just to the government. It actually can also apply to things like private companies. So there's two theories that we use to determine whether a private company is a state actor. And they are called the public function theory and the entanglement theory. Again, a very general overview. The public function theory says any private organization or any private company that is performing the actions that are typically reserved for the state can and should be considered a state actor. For example, if you have a high school athletic association, they're performing governance over high school sport for the state. Because of that, they're doing something that the state would generally do. They're performing a governmental service on behalf of the state. So while the High School Athletic Association is not the government, because they're performing a public function in doing something that the government should be doing, they are state actors. The second theory is something called the entanglement theory. And the easiest way to think of this is the entanglement of government money with private entities. So if I take government money and I give it to a private entity to perform a service or to aid in its performance of a service, that makes that private entity a state actor. And so constitutional and federal laws apply to those state actors or individuals who are performing tasks or receiving money from state actors. Now, it gets a lot more complex than that. And there's a ton of legal precedent that establishes whether someone is or is not a state actor. But it's important to note that in order for the Constitution to apply, and in order for the 14th Amendment, which we just went over, to apply, we have to have state action. In sport, there are a ton of entities that are considered state actors. For example, high school athletic associations. They are, through the public function theory, considered state actors. High schools and colleges themselves are state actors, regardless of if they're public or private. Why? Because public high schools are state organizations. They operate within the confines of the state and the federal government. Private high schools, while they are, don't operate specifically under the guise of state education, they are performing the function that the government would normally perform in providing education and they're also receiving money from the government. They might not be receiving money directly, but for example, they're using maybe government services like busing 
And so they're receiving that service from the government, which then makes them a state actor. Oftentimes in athletics, they might play their athletic competitions on public land rather than their own private school. And so by playing on public land, again, they're using something that the government is offering, so they're entangling themselves. So because of the public function theory and the entanglement theory, we see many, many sport entities tied up and actually become state actors, meaning that the federal and constitutional laws apply to them. And that then carries us into the main conversation I want to have today, which is how we apply these important aspects of the 14th Amendment to sport. And more specifically, how do we apply the 14th Amendment stating that no state can make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of U.S. citizens, nor shall any state deprive a person of life, liberty, and property without the due process of law. And that's what I want to focus on, the deprivation of life, liberty, and property without due process. So we have a basic understanding now of the reasons we have laws, and we have an understanding of why the 14th Amendment was put into place and what it actually says in sport, as with in any other field of law. The best way to then understand the application of this law is to set the parameters for the conversation and then look to see what past court cases have occurred and the findings and outcomes of those cases to see how they might apply to the specific claims that you're making. And this way, we're going through and we're looking at that past legal precedent. So let me set the parameters for how I got into this really interesting topic of the application of the right to due process, which is stated in the 14th Amendment, to the world of sports. I was initially introduced to this combination of ideas by a past colleague of mine named Amanda Segrist. Now, Amanda Segrist is a professor who studies law and has a law degree. And she came in and we started to have this conversation about high school athletes being deprived the right to a hearing and just being kicked off the team. And we started talking about it more and more, and we realized that there were some constitutional questions here. And so we did research on this, and we wrote a series of legal papers dealing with this. And we, in part, talk about the idea of the participation in high school sports growing so much. And in fact, if we look at the numbers, just this past year, high school sport for the 29th year in a row, reached a record high number of participants with almost 8 million people participating in high school sport. Now, that's fantastic that so many people are being involved, but statistically speaking, the increase in the number of participants brings with it a growth in the number of potential grievances that might be filed by student-athletes on an annual basis. Grievances consist of violations of governing bodies' academic standards and or violations of codes of conduct. And in dealing with academic violations, state high school athletic associations, which we've already established and talked about being state actors, they set forth rules and standards to try to define academic eligibility. They define GPA that you have to have to play on the team. They talk about having to progress towards a degree. They talk about a layout of basic courses that you must take and amongst other things. The association then also has punishments for those individuals who are failing to meet the given academic standards. And the reason that we do this is to try to have a 
fair and balanced playing field. However, as we were doing this research, we found that the current structure offered by state high school athletic associations in addressing academic issues was not consistent with code of conduct expectations and disciplinary proceedings. While high school athletic associations were found to offer standards of conduct and associated punishments for student-athletes, they often kept these standards very vague. And for example, we looked at the Ohio High School Athletic Association, or OSHA, and they state in their regulation and guidelines on tobacco, alcohol, drug, and steroids, the following policy in regards to drug use. They say, quote, if you use anabolic steroids or other performance-enhancing drugs, you are ineligible for interscholastic competition until medical evidence indicates that your system is free of those drugs, end quote. However, OSHA states nothing in its policies about punishments for student-athletes who use alcohol, tobacco, or other illegal drugs. Rather, the bylaw states specifically in Section 5, Bylaw 451, quote, in matters pertaining to personal conduct in which athletic contests and their related activities are not involved, the school itself is to be the sole judge as to whether the student-athlete may participate in athletics. End quote. Likewise, the University Interscholastic League, or the UIL, which is the High School Athletic Association of Texas, has a detailed steroid policy, as well as rules defining eligibility, but they say nothing in their constitution about the use of other drugs. So we found that the lack of uniform standards for how student-athletes conduct themselves away from academics leaves the creation of policy and disciplinary actions to the school districts, schools, athletic departments, and coaches themselves. And as such, policies and procedures and punishments may vary widely amongst incidents. Moreover, the lack of uniform standards at a governing level may result in coaches and athletic departments disseminating punishments to student-athletes at their own will. While high school athletic association bylaws like those of OSHA may allow for this, they enable situations where an athlete may be punished or dismissed from a team without being granted due process. And as we were researching this, we found multiple cases where this happened. For example, in 2013, a Shakopee High football player and wrestler was indefinitely suspended from high school sport after tweeting, quote, I'm about to drill my teammates on Monday. In response to the suspension, the athlete and his family bought suit against the school claiming his constitutional rights of due process were violated. Also in 2013, a North Andover High School female volleyball player brought suit when she was suspended from her team for responding to a teammate's request to provide a ride home from a party where drinking had occurred. Despite the fact that she was, quote, cleared by the police for not drinking or being in possession of alcohol, end quote, the school still suspended her five games. Again, she brought lawsuit claiming that a lack of due process was provided to her, thus violating her 14th Amendment rights. So despite all these recent situations in which procedural due process may be alleged to have been denied to interscholastic student-athletes, Courts have seemingly remained steadfast while relying on past legal precedent to rule against the student-athletes. That is, the courts have ruled on each lawsuit, oftentimes citing Taylor v. Numclaw School District, which reasons there is no right to participate in 
interscholastic athletics or extracurricular activities, but rather that participation is a privilege. Furthermore, the courts have also followed Taylor and reasoned students possess no property interest in their athletic endeavors. Accordingly, the denial of due process in handling code of conduct violations in regard to interscholastic athletics does not constitute a breach of student-athletes' 14th Amendment rights. However, we argue multiple times throughout multiple legal papers that this should not be the case and that, in fact, these cases and so many others do violate a student's right to procedural due process. More simply put, we believe that the application of the Taylor v. Numclaw legal precedent is wrong. We think that state actors, which schools are and state high school athletic associations are, we think they should not be able to deprive individual student athletes the right to a property and liberty interest without first providing them a hearing and providing them with the evidence they have against them. Because if we don't provide them that procedural due process protection, then what would stop me if I have kids playing in high school A from calling the rival high school and making a false claim against their star player just to get that player suspended? Nothing would stop that, and the player can very easily be kicked off that team. And in fact, we have found cases where that is true. So we argue and we believe that you cannot take away the student's right to play without providing them first the opportunity to defend themselves. The problem is, is that not only are court cases that are being tried relying on this Taylor v. Numclaw precedent, which states individuals don't have the right to play a high school sport or engage in extracurricular activity, they're also citing a Supreme Court case, which is called Goss v. Lopez. And in citing that case, they're saying, again, that they do not have a right to participate. We argue, though, and I truly believe that there is a misunderstanding of this. First, before we get to the misunderstanding, let's lay out what Goss v. Lopez actually says. A review of the case reveals an incident in which a public high school student, i.e. Goss, was suspended from school for 10 days. Claiming a violation of his right to due process, Goss filed a lawsuit stating a suspension without a hearing was unconstitutional. This was appealed all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, which ruled in a 5-4 decision in favor of Goss. Justice White wrote the majority opinion, and in it, he noted that because a person is required by state law to attend school until a certain age, and therefore has a governmentally created expectation of education, a property interest exists in regards to all activities included in, quote, the total educational process. Justice White added that the government is not only required, but also creating a, quote, legitimate claim of entitlement, end quote, to an individual's primary and secondary education. As a result, a property interest exists, and consequently, academic institutions are required to afford students procedural due process because, as we learned in talking about the 14th Amendment, you cannot deny an individual a property interest without giving them procedural due process. 
and determining what qualifies as educational property interest within primary and secondary education, the court provided a broad definition using this term total educational process. But the question really becomes what all is included in this term total educational process? Well, further review of the Gosby Lopez decision shows that the total educational process refers to all formalized school activities contributing to the edification of youth, including discretionary decisions of school personnel. These activities include, but are not limited to, quote, how to grade the student's work, whether a student passes or fails a course, and, important for our conversation today, whether he may be excluded from interscholastic athletics or extracurricular activities, end quote. This important definition of educational process that's found in the Gosby Lopez opinion issued by Justice White in a footnote is vital to our claim that student athletes, both high school and middle school, have a property interest in their participation and therefore, before they are suspended, should be granted the right to due process, the right to a hearing, the right to see the evidence that is against them. Now, it's important to note why we care so much about procedural due process being provided to students and student-athletes alike, and it's because procedural due process, the very purpose of it, is to prevent arbitrary and inconsistent outcomes by state actors, in this case, by high schools. In discussing discipline outcomes related to students' education, Justice White speaks of this, and he says, quote, the student's interest is to avoid unfair or mistaken exclusion from the educational process with all of its unfortunate consequences. Disciplinarians, although proceeding in utmost good faith, frequently act on the report and advice of others, and the controlling facts in the nature of the conduct under challenge are often disputed, end quote. So back in 1975, Justice White is seeing what could potentially happen, not only in academia, but also in interscholastic athletics. He's recognizing that oftentimes the facts of the case are in dispute. And without giving the student, or as we argue, the student athlete, the right to hear the facts and dispute them with providing them procedural due process, we could end up coming to a decision that could harm the student. By suspending that student from athletics, we are removing them from something that's valuable that they can learn considerable amount from. People argue over and over and over again that interscholastic athletics actually play a vital role in the education of those individuals who participate. High school athletics actually teaches individuals a lot about teamwork, about leadership, about time management. It teaches you how to control emotion. It teaches you how to deal with loss and how to deal with victory. Those are vital aspects which we are trying to educate and teach our children. So by removing an individual from this, by having an arbitrary decision that the individual is not allowed to challenge, we are potentially harming the education of that individual. Therefore, we argue and we believe that at least a minimum due process protection should be required when suspending a student from extracurricular activities to ensure that the school's decision is not arbitrary. However, 
The educational process is relation to extracurricular activity, in particular to athletics, has been a point of contention over the years as a majority of courts hearing the legal issue have held participation is a privilege and not a right. And because it is a privilege, they state that participants are not entitled to due process protection. And we see this in cases all over the country. We see this in Brentwood Academy versus Tennessee Secondary School back in 2001 in Bruce versus SC High School League. In 1972, we see Hamilton versus Tennessee Secondary School Athletic Association in 76. We see Morrison et al. versus Roberts. We see Niles v. University Interscholastic League. We see Whipple versus Oregon School Activities Association. We see so many of these types of lawsuits. To dissect the bulk of the lawsuits and the outcomes on this matter, the previously mentioned Taylor v. Numclaw decision becomes the relevant decision. Now, in that Taylor case, the Court of Appeals of Washington, not the Supreme Court, but the Court of Appeals of Washington, ruled that when a student was suspended from the team for underage drinking, no violation of the student's due process rights occurred because the students did not possess a property interest in interscholastic athletics. The student argued that based on the precedent established in the Supreme Court's Gossip Lopez that we just discussed and outlined, established that a property interest exists in education and that participating on the football team was a part of the educational process and therefore entitled him to procedural due process prior to the suspension from athletics. However, the court reason athletics was not a part of this. And as we pointed out, many courts have agreed and they've actually cited the Taylor v. Numclaw school district decision. But fortunately, not all courts have ruled that way. For example, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has held for decades that interscholastic athletics governing bodies, which in Pennsylvania is the Pennsylvania Interscholastic Athletic Association, must provide due process to its athletes. Simply put, Pennsylvania law states, quote, the elements of due process of law are noticed and an opportunity to be heard and to defend in an orderly proceeding. Specifically, the Supreme Court determined that the adjudicatory action cannot be validly taken by any tribunal, whether judicial or administrative, except upon a hearing wherein each party shall have opportunity to know of the claims of his opponent, to hear the evidence introduced against him, to cross-examine witnesses, to introduce evidence on his own behalf, and to make argument, end quote. In other words, what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has established is that student-athletes have an entitlement to procedural due process before they can be suspended. As illustrated by the decades of Pennsylvania law, interscholastic athletics play a vital role in education and hold an ever-growing importance in our society. As such, participants have a property interest in their participation and should have protections granted to them to allow for due process in accordance with the 14th Amendment of the United States. But not all states follow this. As we just pointed out, there's tens of lawsuits out there that fly in the face of this issue. And so the issue is still unsettled, and we still see instances, as we mentioned about halfway through this podcast, where student-athletes are being suspended from participation in high school sport without having that procedural due process, which is so vital to our Constitution. 
But why does all this matter? Why do we even care about how the laws apply within sport? And in particular, why do we care about this application of the 14th Amendment? Especially if we don't have children that are participating in high school sports. Well, Cotton and Woolahan, who write a great sport law text, note that there's a continual growth over the past decades in our dependence on the legal system to resolve disputes between individuals. In regards to claims of the violation of due process, secondary schools need to be prepared as such to see an increase in lawsuits. Though the Supreme Court has yet to directly rule on the issue of due process in interscholastic athletics, the continual growth and prominence of sport in our society suggests they may be called upon to address the issue in the near future. Within such a ruling, the Supreme Court could explain that the spirit of the law suggests that society strives to provide fair and opportunistic environments for all in all situations where the government is involved. Furthermore, they could note that the law attempts to avoid arbitrary and capricious judgments that student-athletes are currently at risk of facing. Accordingly, it would behoove educational systems and state high school athletic associations to have a method in place for fair and balanced procedures for handling eligibility issues in sports regarding not only academics, which they currently do, but also code of conduct violations. They should look to change their laws before they're forced to to provide those individual student-athletes with procedural due process. And providing procedural due process is pretty simple. All that is required for procedural due process is a hearing in the notice of that hearing. The student conduct boards are clearly in place for educational institutions because the Goss lawsuit states that individuals have a property interest in education. As such, schools already have in place policies and procedures for how to deal with code of conduct issues in education. All they would need to do is take those and apply them to student athletes. And while the issue might not seem to have importance to you individually, this conversation does strike an important accord with people who are wanting to enter into sport management or who are already there. It teaches us the importance of looking at what's going on in our surroundings and applying it to our specific situations to help us avoid not only lawsuits, but getting caught up in costly endeavors. By a school having in place policies to provide due process to student-athletes, they're saving themselves not only the court cost, the lawyer fees of going to court, they're also saving themselves the bad press that might accompany it. They're also streamlining the process and making it go much quicker, saving a lot of the time and energy of not only the coach and athletic director, but also the school president and school board. So individuals who are looking to go into sport management or who are already there can use these past lawsuits and these legal articles and legal conversations to help guide their decisions in determining how they should set up different operations to avoid negative publicity, lawsuits, and financial costs in the future. This conversation doesn't stop here. We could go way more in depth on how we can set up policies and procedures to provide due process. And we could talk more about past court cases which have looked and examined this issue. And maybe in the future, we will dive into this issue a bit more. But for now, and for today's podcast, what I wanted to do and what I think we accomplished 
is a conversation that gets you thinking about how we can take a specific law and apply it within the world of sports. And not only that, but how that law can affect the decision-making of high school athletic administrators or other individuals that are involved in the world of sport. Hopefully today, you've also learned not just about the 14th Amendment, but a little bit about the origins of law and a little bit about how it intersects from a broad standpoint with the world of sport management. If you have any questions on this topic or if you would like to see more sports law topics covered in this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at the sport professor on Instagram. Follow us for weekly updates on our topics and some behind-the-scenes footage and conversations. Send us messages to tell us what you like and don't like so we know how to plan out future podcasts. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.